What happens to the money in all this? Just where does the real money go, and how does it get there? Hey everyone and welcome to Decrypting Crypto Series 1, Episode 7. We're going to be talking about transferring and storing crypto. I'm your co-host, Matthew House Barbie, and my other co-host here is Austin Knight. Hey Matt, hey everyone. So if you all recall Episode 2, we talked about how you can buy crypto and we touched lightly on storing it. But we want to take a deeper dive on how you really safely store that cryptocurrency and how you transfer it from yourself to friends or to companies when you want to purchase something. So how does that work? First, we're going to start with the basics, which is that when you use fiat currency, you use a bank. And with crypto, you're the bank. This brings a lot of advantages, but also a lot of complexities. So we'll cover how you send money and how that works in crypto versus a traditional bank. We're gonna talk about how you store money and the different types of wallets that you can use there. We dove into that a little bit in episode two, but we just wanna make sure that we are perfectly clear about how that works in the context of transferring and storing crypto. Then we're gonna talk about the scary, terrifying situation of what happens if you lost your private key, which is what allows you to access your wallet and therefore access your cryptocurrency. If you lose it, what do you do? There's some steps that you can take. And then finally, to make sure that you never get yourself into that situation in the first place, we're gonna talk about how you stay safe, how you secure your crypto from a technological perspective and also from a personal perspective. All right, let's jump into it. I liked the part that you said at the start was kind of like with fiat currency, you use a bank and crypto, you become the bank, which is better. <laughs> we will soon uh, find overall, out. Overall, <laughs> I think it's better. <laughs> There's some scary things that you have to accept in the process. Like, wait, I'm, I'm the bank? Right. But it is ultimately better. Oh, absolutely. So, right, let's, let's have a little bit of a refresher here. As we said... We've touched on some of this stuff in episode two. We didn't go too deep, but I just want to refresh everyone here, in particular you, the listener's memory, on the example of sending money in the traditional banking system versus sending money in the crypto banking system. Is it a banking system? <laughs> I guess we in can call it that. In the crypto system. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So traditional, traditional system. You store your currency in a bank account owned by the bank. You have a routing number, an account number. If it's an international account, you have like a international bank account number or a Swift, right? You ask the bank, whether that's via a phone call, in person, online. If you're gonna go super old school, maybe you can fax them. Hey, I'm not gonna stop you, right? <laughs> <laughs> Do people still use fax? Oh. I use fax. <laughs> <laughs> Could you fax me some bitcoins? Yeah. <laughs> Bring back fax. Right, so you faxed over your requests to the bank to send money to another account. Right, So you, you're going to need to have that other person's routing number, their account number. I'm sure they can fax you that. And when you've got that, you've sent it over, the bank will then contact the receiving party's bank. They'll say, hey, and again, 
Fax is a perfect application. Fax for the blockchain. I don't want to keep ringing the fax thing here, <laughs> but I feel like we've got an ICO in us coming up soon, right? Oh, boy. <laughs> it's definitely coin. not a scam. <laughs> <laughs> so the bank contacts the receiving party's bank, and it sends the funds. More importantly, using double-entry bookkeeping, right? And depending on where the receiving party's bank is, especially if it's cross-border, you're gonna get a bunch of fees, but even just US to US bank, the average fee you're gonna get charged is between 15 and $35. That's even if you send $10, that is- You're still getting that $15 <laughs> fee. Oh, worth every penny, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But the funds will then end up in the receiving party's account in a very timely fashion, two to four days on average. If you're lucky. If you're lucky, <laughs> yeah. And the kind of fees and times, here's like the little asterisk, right? It's like fees and times increase if it moves overseas and also could change depending on the feeling of the bank. So yep. that kind of changes around. Then we got the crypto, crypto bank. So you store your crypto in your wallet, owned by you, you being the bank of you. You use your private key to gain access to your wallet and you can send funds to the receiving party's public address. Public address being the public address of their wallet, kind of like the account number of a bank. You pay a transaction fee here per transaction. So if we look at like Ether, average last year of uh, near the end of the year in particular of Ether transactions is around 50 cent worth of Ether. So there's way lower overhead here, yeah. which helps, and it's not a single entity controlling it, which also helps, but you still have to incentivize all of those computers around the world, all of those nodes, to keep track of this public ledger. So. Those miners, those yes. children that power the <laughs> network. <laughs> right, so the other thing to mention here is, right, okay, that's Ether. The transaction fee is 50 cent. Different blockchains have different transaction fees. I think some like, of them have virtually none. Yeah, like Dash is like two cent per transaction. I think XRP is even lower. Litecoin at the time here right now is around twenty cent. Now Bitcoin is a bit more. <laughs> we're, mm -hmm. we're talking actually closer to the banks type fees we're seeing in Jan twenty eighteen. We're seeing closer to like the ten fifteen dollars mark. That's not ideal, but Look, we're not going to dig too deep into that because, hey, that's next episode, so that's going to be a fun one. Uh, <laughs> but once you've paid the transaction fee, which happens as soon as you send the funds, the funds are received by the receiving party, in the case of Ether, in usually under 10 minutes. Well, you just went from two to four days, or let's say you're dealing with international transfers even longer than that, and you turn that into 10 minutes. That's pretty sweet, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's... If, if I had to say, like, what is, like, Crypto 101 benefit, it's showcased in the past five minutes of us talking. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you've transferred some funds, and you did it in a much cooler way than you would with a bank. Now that you have funds or that the receiving party got your funds, how are they going to store it? Mm-hmm. So within an exchange like Coinbase or Bittrex or Gemini, you can actually store the funds. You can keep 
your funds in a Coinbase wallet, for yeah. example. And they even have something called the Coinbase Vault, which is a little bit outside of the exchange, a little bit more secure. But ultimately, this is the least secure method. It's not that it's necessarily fully unsecure, but it's definitely the least secure form of storing your currency. And the reason for this is, is not because of a flaw in the blockchain or the cryptocurrency technology per se, but simply because the exchange is centralized. So your, your currency is centralized in Coinbase, which makes it easier to hack instead of having kind of like a kind of like a bank, really. Isn't kind it, of right? like a yeah. bank. It's so here you're dealing with about similar security as you would if you had your currency in a bank. Of course, you could argue is Coinbase more secure or less secure than a bank. That's all dependent on the exchange that you're dealing with. But they do take similar steps to keep you secure. Coinbase definitely has better engineers than a lot of banks. Do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Coinbase has. Pretty, pretty strong insurance as well. So yeah. if Coinbase gets hacked, as in the company Coinbase, and it exposes all your data, I believe it's something like they have insurance up to around about a million dollars worth of assets. Now, what that insurance does not cover is if your personal account gets hacked. Right. So you it's like only the give stuff someone, the yeah, you give someone or they guess your password to your private account mm -hmm. and they get into your account. That's like your failure of security, yes. right? So that doesn't get covered. That's different, yeah. But let's say you want to take it a step further and you want to be more secure than an exchange or perhaps more secure than you would have been at a bank level, mm -hmm. uh, which is the smart a noble thing to do whenever you're dealing with cryptocurrency. Your first option is to get an online or a mobile wallet like Jax or Bread. We mentioned those in episode two. If you want to take it a step further than that, you can get a hardware wallet like the Trezor or Ledger. Matt and I both have the Ledger Nano S, just a matter of personal preference yeah. based on what that can store. Some of these wallets can store multiple currencies. Others can only store one currency. That's going to be up to you to determine which wallet you want to go with. If you want to take it a step further and go as secure as possible, then you can get a paper or an offline wallet, something that you're never going to store in a digital format on your computer. Yeah. It's literally a piece of paper via MyEtherWallet. And this is, this is super secure. But again, as we had mentioned before, the more technically secure that you get with your cryptocurrency, the more you also open yourself up to human error. Yeah, and, and just one thing on my Ether wallet. My Ether wallet is primarily for Ether related cryptos. So like anything that's built on the Ethereum blockchain or Ether itself, which is a actually a huge amount of different cryptos. Most ICOs are run that way. But you can't store things like Bitcoin in there. But if you have Bitcoin, XRP, Litecoin, whatever, right? You you can go and just Google like Bitcoin paper wallet and you'll find a bunch of paper wallet solutions that you can very quickly go and figure out. Please, please, please just double check on any of these things. When I'm saying Google it, I'm also implying that you're going to use some common sense and not just fall into some scam. Just yeah. make sure that whatever you're doing here it seems to be like read up on some reviews, make sure that people have used them. If possible, take recommendations from a friend. That's yep. always the best. I know that's not always possible. Hey, at worst, take recommendations from us, like for at least wallets where we have nothing to gain other than like really honestly giving our opinion in what we think is yeah. working. And a, a very common practice whenever you're trying to find a new, an ICO say, or a paper wallet is 
take the name of that paper wallet, say like my ether wallet, and then just append scam to the end of the Google search. <laughs> yeah. My ether wallet scam and just see what comes up. That's a very simple tactic, but that can give you a, a quick gut check as to how this technology is being perceived by the community if you don't have the ability to you know really dive into it or, or talk to a friend. 100%. So there's something here that I want to really cover off. And yeah. this is like the crypto nightmare, right? Yeah. Like it's so remember when we were talking about that sliding scale of tech security versus opening yourself up to human error vulnerabilities there. What happens when you make that human error mistake? So let's say you've lost your private key. Private key is the only thing that you really have that enables you to access your wallet. You lose that, I mean, this is like, this is game over. Do not pass go and do not collect your 200 Bitcoins, right? Like, this is it. So I, I've said this before and I really want to emphasize it. There is no customer support for the blockchain. There is customer support for Coinbase and some of the other different exchanges, how responsive they are is maybe another thing. But as Austin was just saying there, like if if you are storing these cryptos and managing, you you become the bank. You need to I was just about to say act like a bank would, but then I realized that banks don't <laughs> always do the best. They're not job always prudent. <laughs> act how you would want a bank to act, right? And I mean, we, we mentioned this in one of the previous episodes where some guy threw out his laptop with 7,500 Bitcoins on it in 2013. And wow, I mean, that was that's worth well over $100 million now. And he's, he's digging up landfill to try and recover it. Don't, don't end up in landfill would be my <laughs> mantra for, for anyone that's kind of now exposed and and thinking about how do I control my own kind of destiny from a security point of view, which, yeah. which kind of leads into like, I mean, we, we've got a few tips here, I would say, for trying to stay safe uh, as much as possible. First, and this has become a little bit of a pattern, watch out for scams. That's like the high level thing. So you can perform that Google search. On a basic level, don't ever give out your private key. You wouldn't give out your... Google password to somebody, you wouldn't give out your banking pin to somebody, don't give out your private key. I think that's key. That it, and, and actually, you make a good point. It's like you're the pin number to your credit card, right? There is never, it's like commonly known, there's never a thing that ever needs your pin other than like the ATM or a, a debit card, like, um, Machine? What are those things called? Yeah. I don't know. Money machines that <laughs> dispense the coffee. Um, That's an automatic teller machine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so other than those situations, that's that's when you use your pin, but you would never tell that like four-digit pin number to someone. This is exactly the same with your private key. If anyone is ever asking for your private key, just be like, hey, no, that's, that's like my credit card pin number. If I give that, it's game over. Yep. Exactly the same. There's nothing to save you after you give that out. That's it. Yeah, it's it's completely over. Yeah. You can also store any of those wallets other than the digital ones, unless you want to put your laptop in it, inside a safe. So get a safe, put your wallet in there, and make sure that it's physically safe. Yeah, I, I think so. Especially with things like the paper wallets, the, the hardware wallets. And that's like another thing is some people refer to hardware wallets as 
air-gapped wallet, same as paper. It basically means it's not connected to the internet and it's stored offline. Sometimes they call it cold storage. I, I'm a very much a proponent of this. I think that these technologies will become a bit more user-friendly over time and things will get a bit easier in storing crypto, but wherever possible, get these out of the exchanges and get them into some kind of air-gapped wallet, right? These hardware wallets like the Trezor or the Ledger, and I'm sure there's plenty other ones as well. Yep, you'll find the one that fits for you. A lot of them are sold on Amazon. So if yeah. you want to read reviews on Amazon and see how people are using them, that's a great place to go. If you own a ton of Bitcoin or if you own a ton of Ether, don't store it all in one place. So earlier we had talked about, you know, maybe ironically, you put some of this in a safe deposit box, <laughs> bringing it right back to the bank, but not in control <laughs> of the bank as much anymore. Or, or maybe you have two different homes or something like that that you're storing it in. Maybe you bury it in your backyard, whatever you want to do, making sure that it's not all stored on one device is is going to mitigate some of that risk that you take on for sure so like if you let's say you did store all of your crypto on a ledger nano right so you've got it all on this like usb flash drive type style thing i would if if i owned 1000 bitcoins first of all the with all due respect austin i wouldn't be sitting next to you right now yeah, i wouldn't be, I, I know you'd be too good for me at that point <laughs> it would all be over <laughs> i'd be i'd be sipping cocktails on a beach somewhere yeah. far away maybe on my private island right like that would be the case but if you do own a fair amount and in all honesty like as soon as you get to anything that you deem you would not want to lose just even buy a couple of different ledgers and you can just split this up instead of having all 1000 bitcoins on one single thing that if it's gone it's gone split up into maybe like a few different ones maybe you bought 10 different ledger nanos in this case right it'd be worth it and put 100 bitcoin on each now that's if you're earning serious amounts but even for smaller amounts that you have like you don't want to even have like six figures worth in US dollar equivalent all sitting in one place. Cause yeah, that's it's just like not good risk management. really. Yeah. But if you do own a very, very small amount, like say that you're just playing around trying to learn the ropes and maybe you've got like a hundred dollars worth of cryptocurrency, it is okay to oh, keep it sure. on the exchange. Don't get overwhelmed by the complexity of wallets until you're, you're ready to deal with that and you're at the scale where that feels appropriate. Speaking of exchanges. Oh yeah. Always set up two-factor authentication. Oh man, please, please do this people. If you don't know what two-factor authentication is, in short, it basically means you need two different ways of verifying that you are you to log in. Now, your first one usually for an exchange is your password and Okay, that's that's fine. But if someone gets your Coinbase password, okay, that might be game over for you. So setting up two-factor authentication could be, hey, they're going to send a text message to your cell phone, and then it will give you a code that you use, and you'll use that to log in. Personally, I actually don't even like that. Yeah, neither I, do I. I was actually out of the country the other day, and... I had my US cell number set up and I went to go into Coinbase and I was like, huh, uh, I want to trade some of these coins around or move some of these coins around, should I say. 
And it was like, okay, cool. We've just sent a text message to your cell phone number. And I was like, oh, no, wait. That's my US and I'm in the UK. Yeah, it's never going to come. And I was like, oh, God, this is a real issue for me if there was a big crisis. So what you want to do is get Google Authenticator. It's an app, free app. And you can set up, basically, as long as you have Wi-Fi and it's set to your device, it will generate a code for you that you can then use in a similar way, but it doesn't require your cell phone number. This is a smart thing to do. Since moving to Brazil, I've had to change my phone number three times over the course of two years. And right now, obviously, I'm in the States, so I used to have my Brazilian phone number tied to my Coinbase account. And then I came to the States and... A lot of crazy stuff was happening with the cryptocurrency. And, <laughs> really? Uh, I, I haven't no, heard anything yeah. Oh, man, you're just so out of the loop over here. Um, I'm telling you. So I, I, was, I was thinking, you know, I, th I think I'd like to buy some right now. And, of course, they, they sent a text message to my Brazilian phone, and I, I wasn't able to get into Coinbase. Same situation as Matt. But the difference is that phone number didn't exist anymore because I had, I had actually canceled it oh, to man, yeah. get a world phone, which is now based out of the States. So I actually had to go through a whole identity verification process <laughs> with Coinbase, which they were actually wonderful about that. Yeah. It only took a few days and this was over the holidays, but I was lucky enough to have enough of my identity information already documented in Coinbase to where they would verify me. But there are a lot of cases where they won't. They don't feel that it's safe enough to do it. So you could you could actually get permanently locked out of your account. That would not be good. That would not be good. I've even so. heard crazy things where scammers have been calling up like T-Mobile or Verizon and impersonating people on their account. And taking getting, over their SIM card. Yeah, taking yeah. over their SIM card, getting their number transferred over to their number, and then being able to pass through the two-factor authentication. It's like crazy shit, right? But yeah, it, but it's it's economically worst. viable. Oh. Yeah. A couple years ago, YouTube went through a bunch of hacks. Huge YouTubers went through the same thing where scammers were using social engineering to get into their SIM cards and take over their YouTube accounts. Anytime that there is an economic incentive to do something like that, uh, you can rest assured that, that people will be led to do it. Yeah, I mean, people prepare to become paranoid wrecks of an individual <laughs> that uh, scrutinize every aspect of your life and security. Your life is never going to be the same again, I'm afraid. Crypto will change it. <laughs> you won't trust people. Friends will leave you. <laughs> but hey, you'll be rich on Ether and Bitcoin, right? So... Which is not even real. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So just to wrap things up, I think the, the key things here, we've, we've talked a bit about how this differs from the, the traditional banking model. The big things that we're really pushing is where possible, get things out of the exchanges, get them into a wallet that you own and do it everything you can to stay safe. Look, sometimes things happen and they're out of your control, but just do everything you can to secure this as much as physically possible. Remember, never give out your private key. That is like the the number one rule of crypto. It's like Fight Club, right? It's like rule number one, <laughs> do not give out your private key. Rule number two, do not give out your private key. Right? Yeah. It's like, that is it. Um, oh yeah, and don't talk about your private key either. You do not talk about Fight Club. <laughs> uh, so hopefully you've learned a bit more. Your store and all of that lovely crypto. It's feeling nice and secure. Next episode, 
This is going to be a big one. We're going to be talking, and we've, we've hinted to this a few times in previous episodes, around Ethereum. We talked about smart contracts. We're going to be doing the deepest of dives into what the hell Ethereum is and all of the different applications that it holds for the future of the blockchain. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and want to show your appreciation to myself and Matt, give us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. We really appreciate that. You can also visit thecoinoffering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies, get caught up on some news, see how your currency is performing. And you can follow us on Twitter at thecoinoffering, as well as email us at podcast at thecoinoffering.com if you'd like to get in touch. Here's a quick preview of what we're going to talk about in the next episode. When Ethereum came in, it it was like that eureka moment where I was like, whoa, actually, this is more than just replacing payments. This is a full whole platform that can be built upon. And it like started blowing my mind. We talked about in episode five, some of the wider applications of blockchain. This is what sent my mind down those avenues. The contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.